Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 150, St. Leo IX. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Everyone, if you're just joining in now, uh, there's a lot of backstory. We've had a really rough span of popes here. It's been really bad times in Rome. In fact, it's been the Dark Ages, literally the Dark Ages. Now, it's not entirely. There have been some good ones. But now at one episode 150, we get to talk about a canonized saint again, St. Leo IX. Thank God. It's perfect timing. 150 episodes in. The last time we got to talk about a canonized saint was in episode 105 with St. Nicholas the Great. And where we last left off, Damasus II had died very shortly after being installed as Pope. And Benedict IX was still hanging around. And if you remember from him, he was kind of a pain and kept coming back and retaking the papal throne. So it wasn't a slam dunk that we were going to get another good and holy Pope. But luckily we did with St. Leo IX. And another great thing about St. Leo is that his biographers were working on his biography while he was still alive. So we know a lot more about him than many of his predecessors. Not only has it been the Dark Ages in terms of the quality of the character of the popes, but also written records were not nearly as prolific as they became in later medieval times. And St. Leo is kind of the turning point of that. So with that, let's go back to the beginning of St. Leo. St. Leo IX was born Bruno of Eggesheim on June 21st, 1002, to a German family in Alsace, which is now in modern-day France. His father was Count Hugh of Eggesheim, the second cousin to the Emperor Conrad II, and his mother was named Helwig. Bruno was the third son in a family, and from an early age, like many noble feudal families, he was destined for a career in the church. So at the age of five, he was sent to the town of Toul to the cathedral school there to begin his training. He lived in Toul for most of his youth. He was ordained a deacon sometime before 1020. And in 1024, when his father's cousin, Conrad II, was elected king of Germany, Bruno was sent to serve in the royal court as a chaplain, as many religious of royal families were. Bruno was intelligent. He spoke German, French, and Latin. He traveled with Conrad II to Italy, and it was at that time on April 1st of 1026 that news reached him that the Holy Roman Emperor, St. Henry II, had died without an heir. And shortly after that, news came that Herman, the Bishop of Toul, also had died. And so the people of Toul had written two letters, one to Bruno and one to Conrad. Now the latter both persuaded and begged the ruler to appoint Deacon Bruno to be their new bishop. And the former begged Bruno to consent, even though as a diocese they were very poor and could not keep him in grand style. Now, the story goes that apparently Conrad had wanted Bruno to have a more important see, but Bruno, in his humility and his love for the poor, agreed to be appointed Bishop of Toul. Now, there's another side to this. Conrad made this appointment for political reasons. He wanted a strong ally to be Bishop of this strategically important see, and apparently Toul, geopolitically, was an important place for him to have his guy there. Now, apparently, there was a little controversy about his Episcopal consecration. Conrad wanted Bruno to be consecrated by the Pope himself at the same time that he would be crowned Holy Roman Emperor. But that made the other French bishops jealous, and the Archbishop of Tyre, under whose jurisdiction Bruno fell as the appointed Bishop of Toul, said that no one consecrated bishop in my ter territory but me. Now, Bruno, who seems to have really lived out humility well, applied to the Archbishop of Trier to be consecrated, but the Archbishop said that he would only do it if Bruno checked every single decision he would ever make as a bishop with the Archbishop first. 
Now, Bruno, of course, refused, and the two were summoned to Conrad's court. Conrad ordered the consecration to go forward, and finally, Bruno became a bishop September 9th, 1027. Now, we only know a couple of facts about Bruno's time as Bishop of Toul, which, by the way, lasted almost a quarter of a century. We know that during his time as Bishop, Toul was attacked by the Kingdom of Burgundy, and as Bishop, Bruno had to organize the military defenses of the city. We know likewise that when a possible war was about to break out between the Empire and France over the territory of Lorraine, Bruno was sent by Conrad II to France to try and maintain peace in the region, which he succeeded in doing. He maintained good relations with the imperial court, and he was partially because of this that in 1048, at the death of Damasus II, the Emperor Henry III chose Bruno to succeed him as the Pope. Now, we have a really cool story about how this all shook out. Bruno apparently did not find himself worthy of the papacy, according to his own biographer, and he was caught completely by surprise. And he objected that he wasn't fit to have the care of the universal church, and apparently in tears, he made a public confession of all his sins of his whole life. But eventually, he was convinced to go. And on his way there, however, he passed through the French town of Besançon, where he met with our old friend, the reforming monk Hildebrand. Now, Hildebrand had entered the monastery of Cluny after leaving for exile with Gregory VI. Bruno apparently asked Hildebrand to come with him to Rome, but the monk refused. And this is interesting. The chronicler Bruno of Segni tells us the story this way. The blessed bishop summoned this man to him, and as soon as he became acquainted with his plans, his wishes, and his piety, asked him to accompany to Rome. When the young man said, I cannot, the bishop asked, why not? He replied, because you are going to Rome to take possession of the Roman church, not according to the principles of the canons, but by means of the secular royal power. The bishop, however, as he was a simple and most generous nature, patiently satisfied his objections, explaining everything that he wished to know. So apparently Hildebrand's objection was that Bruno was being forced on the Roman church by the emperor, and that Later on, this is going to become a big point of controversy, the emperor shouldn't be the one appointing church leaders. It should be the other way around, if anything. But in reality, the church should have some freedom in choosing who they elected as pope or as bishop of a particular diocese. And so he made that objection to Bruno, and Bruno says, okay, okay, I guess I've got to try and do this better. So after this encounter, Bruno stripped himself of his bishop's robes, and he dressed like a pilgrim, and he completed the rest of his trip to Rome with Hildebrand with him. He was thus regularly elected by the clergy of Rome on February 2nd, 1049. The cardinals shouting out in St. Peter's Basilica, Blessed Peter has chosen Bruno for bishop. And he was consecrated 10 days later, taking the name Leo IX, which was intentionally hearkening back to St. Leo the Great. Now, immediately upon his election, Leo was faced with threats from Benedict IX, who was still menacing Rome from the sidelines, and whose adherents, which if you remember were the Tuscalani family from whom he had sprung, They did not like these German-chosen popes. Leo first summoned Benedict to appear before the bishops, but when he refused, he sent an army out to defend Rome from the enemy forces surrounding it, and he eventually defeated Benedict's forces. Now, at that same synod which Benedict was asked to attend, Leo began his process of reform. He not only condemned simony, which, as you remember, is the sin of buying and selling church offices and positions, but also he deposed bishops who were guilty. And it's hard to understate how difficult this work of reform was. So many bishops and priests were guilty of benefiting from simony to the point that Leo at one point wanted to remove every priest who had been ordained by a simonical bishop. And the priests of Rome protested that there would be no more priests left. Everyone was doing it. So this wasn't going to be a quick and easy process, but a gradual slog that we're going to take several episodes to discuss of cleaning up the church. Not only the church there in Rome, but the church throughout 
the countryside, throughout Italy, throughout the entire world. Now, Bruno was also going to begin the process of enforcing clerical celibacy again in the Roman Church, a need which was brought to his attention through a letter from the reforming monk St. Peter Damien. Now, we've already met St. Peter Damien, but since he's going to play a huge role in our story going forward, let's loop back and look at where he comes from. Peter was born in 1007 in northern Italy to a poor but educated family. He studied at the various universities in the area, including in Ravenna and Parma, but his piety was his chief attribute when he was younger. He soon left the scholastic life. He was disgusted by the corruption of the churches where he studied, and instead he joined a group of Reformed Benedictines who had received a role from St. Romuald and who lived as hermits. And there he kind of rose through the ranks to become the prior and brought his own zealous love of fasting and discipline to his monastic community. Now, St. Peter Damien, as we've already seen, was particularly concerned about the state of the church, and he was scandalized by the base corruption that he saw just everywhere. So when he knew that he had a receptive audience and a saintly and reforming pope, he made sure the pope knew just how bad things were. He wrote a letter to St. Leo, which has come down to us today as the Liber Gamorianus, in which he outlined how bad it had gotten, how degenerate the clergy had become, decrying especially the practice of sodomy amongst the clergy, but also the general lack of clerical celibacy. His book was detailed and stringent, to the point of being almost inappropriate to read, and it shed a light where before no light had been shed. Now, St. Leo accepted it and allowed it to be published, even though there was a backlash against St. Peter Damien, both by those he was criticizing and by those who thought it was not in good taste or decency to talk openly about such things. But St. Peter Damien knew that the best disinfectant was sunlight, and his letter became one of the first major documents pushing for comprehensive clerical and church reform. And of course, this isn't the last time we're going to hear from St. Peter Damien. Comprehensive church reform was what St. Leo also wanted to undertake, and not only in Rome, but universally. So he decided to take his reforming ways on tour, first to Germany, where he met with Henry III in the Rhineland, and then to his home in France. He had been invited by the Archbishop of Rheims in particular to come and dedicate the Abbey Church of St. Remigius, or St. Remy as it's known today. And while he was there, he intended to hold a large council to initiate reform in France, and especially to target simony. The French king at the time, Henry I, was not keen on this idea at all, and he tried to prevent him from coming and holding a large council, preventing himself and many other bishops from attending. But Leo held fast, and he consecrated the church, and with the relics of St. Remigius on the altar, he held a synod of the various neighboring bishops. During the synod, he asked if anyone present had ever given the sacrament of holy orders for money. Apparently, the question caused quite a stir, as several bishops sadly admitted that they had. He then moved on to Mainz and again held a synod condemning simony and the failings in clerical celibacy. Now, when he returned to Rome in 1050, a different issue had popped up. Along with clerical celibacy and simony, Leo had to confront the controversy surrounding a French theologian named Berengar of Tours. Berengar taught a view of the Eucharist which was contrary to transubstantiation. Now, to be fair, transubstantiation, while the consistent understanding of the church, had not yet been formally defined in technical terminology. There was still a gray area that hadn't quite been worked out. Now, Beringer taught that the Eucharist was symbolically changed, or that Christ's presence was brought in a symbolic way to the bread and wine, not that the substances of bread and wine are changed themselves to the body and blood of Christ. Now, there is a symbolic aspect to the sacrament, so this isn't the most unreasonable position. But he went too far in one direction. He said they exist alongside, in a spiritual way, the fi- alongside the physical bread and wine. 
Transubstantiation, of course, means that the very substance, the whatness of bread and wine, have now been changed into the body and blood. So much so that if you ask what is there, it would be incorrect to say bread and wine. It would only be correct to say the body and blood. Whereas under Berengar's view, if you asked what is there, you could say the body and blood, and you could say bread and wine. Berengar's teaching had caught the attention of another zealous theologian, a monk named Lanfranc of Beck who started a correspondence with Berenger, urging him to recant and return to the traditional teaching of the church. Berenger responded by saying, no, this was the traditional teaching of the church, and it shows what kind of a gray area there was here. The letter happened to reach Lanfranc while he was in Rome, and while St. Leo was just getting back from his trip, and intended to call a synod in Rome at Easter. So Lanfranc read the letter to the synod, and the synod denounced the theology of Berenger and urged him to recant. Now, we're going to hear more about Berenger and Lanfranc in later episodes, The issue isn't settled here, but this is kind of the beginnings of it. When Leo arrived back in Rome, he found that there was trouble brewing in southern Italy. So the Normans, who if you remember from previous episodes were the descendants of Vikings and who were mercenaries, were at this time beginning to take over southern Italy and Sicily. Basically what happened was that they started out as mercenaries, but began to realize that, hey, why sell our services when we can just take this territory on our own? The main noble leading the charge was the famed Robert Guiscard. Now, southern Italy has been a mess for centuries. We've heard about it off and on for a while now. First it was the Byzantines, and then the Saracens moved in, but then the Byzantines came back, and this still is a very Greek-dominated area, and it was the last Byzantine foothold in Italy. So there's a lot of Greek-speaking and Orthodox churches. Now, the Saracen Raiders were also there, and we talked about them a ton about 15 episodes ago. They had conquered most of Sicily, so there was a Muslim population there too. And then there were the locals, who were just small-time Italian nobility. So the Normans were really coming into their own and taking a lot of territory and messing this pot and stirring it even more. And several local nobles wrote to Rome, complaining about how the Normans were treating them. St. Leo did not like what he heard one bit, so he wrote to the Normans asking them to stop, and then he traveled through southern Italy, but to no avail. Eventually, it's going to come to battle. But before that, duty called elsewhere. Leo returned to France in 1050 to his home diocese of Toul, where he presided at a large liturgical celebration before heading to Germany and meeting with the emperor there. By 1051, he was back in Rome, and again, the Normans were stirring things up and taking his attention. Apparently, the conflict had gotten worse, as some of the native Lombard population massacred a group of Normans, which include a local chieftain. So the Normans then retaliated by even being more harsh to those they had conquered. So a final settlement would have to wait, though, for one more trip to Germany. But as he came back, he had with him some German troops to help. Moving south with his German support and several local Italian bands of uh, soldiers, the Normans were finally brought to battle at the Battle of Civitate on June 18, 1053. Neither side actually wanted to fight, but the Normans were stubborn, and the German forces in the papal side mocked their enemies, goading them into a conflict. Now, unfortunately, Leo lost the battle and was himself captured. We are uncertain exactly how this happened. Leo's biography suggests that he gave himself up in order to end the conflict, but other sources suggest that the people of the town of Civitate drove him out. Regardless, the Pope was held prisoner by the Normans for about eight months, And when he was released, his health was shaky, even though he'd been treated with honor by his Norman jailers. So we're approaching the end of Leo's life. And one thing I need to include explicitly that I've only kind of touched on briefly is Leo's role in forming a reformist party in Rome. Leo gathered around him a group of vigorous reform-minded clerics and some nobles who supported them, many of them who were monks 
and reformers, and not only from Italy, but from around Europe. And this group will really chart the path forward and bring the church out of the Dark Ages more than could be accomplished in one pontificate. And we're going to hear about these guys for the next like 10 to 15 episodes. The most famous and most important of these reformers was, of course, Hildebrand, who Leo brought with him from Cluny at the beginning of his papacy. Hildebrand is going to be the guy who weaves in and out of the next like five or six episodes. He is one of the most important people in the history of the church. And Leo was the one who brought him to Rome. Another is, of course, the famous St. Peter Deeming, who we already discussed, but right now he's working from his monastery up north, but soon he's going to come and join the group in Rome. A third is a guy named Cardinal Humbert of, uh, of Silvia Candidia, a French monk that Leo recruited and brought with him to Rome. And this group is going to grow over the years, and really their team effort is what's going to bring about the reform of the papacy over the next century or so. Now with that, we have one final thing to discuss before finishing Leo's incredible pontificate. And that's the more unfortunate one. It has to do with relationships with the Eastern Church. Apparently, the on-again, off-again tensions between the East and the West regards to practice and belief had flared up. A couple of Eastern bishops had written to some Western bishops complaining that the Western practices were not acceptable and minimizing the Pope's role as the Vicar of Christ. And Pope Leo IX sent a letter to the Patriarch in Constantinople, a man named Michael Cerularius, asserting the legitimacy of the Western position. He sent the letter in 1053 with one of his chief collaborators and one of the central figures of the reform circle in Rome, Cardinal Humbert. Now, once in Constantinople, the Roman delegation didn't just deliver the letter and leave. They got to debating the patriarch and publishing their uh, points of view, and tensions started to flare. And finally, on the 16th of July, 1054, they published a decree of excommunication against the patriarch, and he responded by excommunicating them, the three legates who were sent over there. Now, this split has come to be known as the Great Schism in the Church. It's the moment when the East and the West broke apart for the last time. It's the reason why, when you talk about the ecumenical patriarch in Constantinople, who today is named Bartholomew, why they are not in full communion with the Church in Rome, and why the Church in Rome is not in full communion with them. It's one of those dates you have to remember in church history, 1054, we break with the Orthodox. But at the time, it was not seen to be such a momentous event. The Eastern decree did not excommunicate the Pope. It was just against the representatives. And Cardinal Humbert didn't have the authority to excommunicate the patriarch, both because it was not given to him by Leo. Indeed, he was writing letters which were fairly conciliatory to the other bishops in the East. Excommunication was not on his mind. And on top of that, even before the excommunication had been written, Leo had died. And when Leo dies, when the Pope dies, the legates lack their authority because they're sent on behalf of a particular Pope. Now, this was the moment things really started falling apart, but the rest of the church world didn't even notice it. The monastic chronicles of the time didn't even note in their books of 1054. Much more important, actually, was the death of Herman the Lame of Reichenau Abbey, which occurred in 1054 and caused a major shockwave through the church. He was one of the great minds and the great singers, and he wrote, apparently, several of the Marian hymns we sing. And that was much more important than the break with the East. Now, you could say the break with the East really started with the Kazian schism or the schism surrounding Phocius or some other moment later on. And you could make a good argument and wouldn't necessarily be wrong. But in history, we have to pick dates for students to memorize. And so if you have to say a particular date is the moment, July 16th, 1054 it is. But as I mentioned, Leo had actually died before that. By April 1054, he was on his deathbed at a chapel in the Lateran. He suffered greatly from his final illness and spent the rest of his time in prayer and making final instructions for the future governance of the church. 
He even blessed his casket with the sign of the cross before finally entrusting his soul to God. He died on April 19, 1054, and was buried in St. Peter's Basilica, where you can still visit his tomb under the altar of the crucifixion of St. Peter. And he was succeeded by another reformer, Pope Victor II. But before we get to him, we're going to have to have another bonus episode, since Leo IX was our 150th pope that we have covered on this podcast. So we're going to recap 150 of popes next week. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on iTunes. Thank you and God bless you.